Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going pretty good. Uh, we have the day off uh, tomorrow for Veterans Day, which is why we're recording on Wednesday today, as opposed yes. to our normal recording date on Thursday. But it's a, it's a, it was a busy week. We had the end of the November oral argument session, um, you know, the final of the two-week session there. And we're going to be talking about two cases today. Uh, later in the show, we're going to chat with Law360 senior Florida reporter Carolina Bellato about one of those. It's a case about whether Puerto Rican residents can claim certain federal benefits. And it really examines the island's kind of unique status as a commonwealth and its unique relationship to the mainland. Definitely a big case. Uh, before we get to that one, though, the court also heard another fairly major case about the religious rights of death row inmates. Jimmy, I know you were covering this one. Um, can you kind of talk us through this one? Sure, yeah. The court heard oral arguments in Ramirez versus Collier on Tuesday, and it's over whether Texas prison officials must accommodate a request from petitioner John H. Ramirez, a death row inmate, to have his pastor touch him and vocalize prayer during his final moments. He's asserted claims under the Constitution and a um, statute that protects the religious liberty interests of inmates. So Ramirez, who was sentenced to death for 2004 murder, has made these arguments under the Constitution's free exercise clause in this statute. Texas, meanwhile, has argued that you know, the execution chamber is a very sensitive place and that executions are a delicate and highly choreographed process and allowing an outsider to come in and make contact with an inmate and speak out loud in whether it's prayer or whatever in the execution chamber increases the chances of something going wrong in which the consequences of a botched execution would be in the in the eyes of the in the words of the state catastrophic potential damage. I feel like this case echoes some of other ones that we've seen before come, uh, you know, across the Supreme Court, across the dockets and petitions. Where does this case exactly fit in? I mean, you're not wrong. It, it does seem like this is a familiar case, and that's because in recent years, the Supreme Court has heard a number of kind of iterations of this question about the religious rights of the condemned and on um, previous cases, the court has decided basically from the emergency docket, these are the emergency last-minute death penalty stay applications that come before the court, and some of those have involved the claims of um, inmates seeking to have their spiritual advisor present in the execution chamber. Now, the court actually generated a lot of controversy with some of its decisions when it came to some of these earlier cases because of the lack of transparency in, in their rationale and how they were deciding these cases differently because it did seem for a time that it was deciding similarly situated inmates' claims in a, in a kind of a different way. And so I think in the Ramirez versus Collier case that was heard on Tuesday, you have the court kind of deciding to give a full airing to this issue about what exactly are the religious liberty protections for the condemned in their final moments before they receive you know, their executions, their lethal injections. And so this case, um, Ramirez's attorney basically made the argument in court that on Tuesday that allowing uh, Ramirez's pastor, uh, Dana Moore, to be in the execution chamber does not actually substantially increase the risk of something going wrong. Um, you know, that he was, he, uh, Ramirez's attorney, Seth Kretzer, said, he would be satisfied even having the spiritual advisor simply allowed to be touching 
his foot in the execution chamber. And in the briefs, they've basically made the argument, Ramirez's counsel, that Texas is trying to turn the execution chamber into a, quote, godless vacuum was one of the descriptions of the case here. And so this really is posing a tension between the safety interests that have been asserted by the state of Texas and the, the Department of Criminal Justice and these religious liberty interests under not only the free exercise clause, but also a 2000 law called the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. So let's jump to Tuesday's arguments. Where exactly did the justices seem to land on these on these positions? Several of the conservative justices at oral arguments were wary of Ramirez's claims. And the reason being is that they think that siding with Ramirez and, and recognizing his constitutional claim and claim under the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act would essentially give rise to an unending stream of similar litigation from other death row inmates. You got to remember that the court already, a substantial part of its docket, is made up of these capital cases, these late night applications, you know, on the day before or sometimes even the day of an execution. So creating potentially a whole new avenue from um, death row inmates to be able to challenge and or delay um, their executions really gave pause to some of the conservative justices. And so here's Justice Samuel Alito Jr., who I should mention is is fairly sympathetic to religious liberty claims in you know, a variety of other contexts, as we've seen in recent terms, he's questioning uh, Kretzer, the attorney for Ramirez, about this potential Pandora's box of new capital cases. So you would be satisfied, you have told us you would be satisfied if Pastor Moore touches Mr. Ramirez's foot. But what's going to happen when the next prisoner says that I have a religious belief that he should touch my knee, he should hold my hand, he should put his hand over my heart. He should be able to put his hand on my head. We're going to have to go through the whole human anatomy with a series of, uh, of cases. Sounds like the chances of Ramirez securing this accommodation might be a bit tough after our Tuesday's arguments. I think that's fair to say, although, you know, you had some sympathy from some of members of the bench, like Justice Sonia Sotomayor was probably the most vocal in kind of um, considering the claims by Kretzer under this statute, this RELUPA, I guess, as, as, you, as they kind of refer to the acronym of it. It kind of requires, she says, to take to, for courts to take an individual's individualized look at each person or prisoner's request for a religious accommodation. So, you know, if the court is concerned that they're going to have to go through an endless iteration of claims brought at the last minute by capital cases, Sotomayor is suggesting that that's not really the court doing that, that's Congress doing that. When it passed this law, when it gave, recognized these uh, religious liberty interests of um, death, death penalty inmates, you know, and in the, in the law's whole purpose was kind of directed at the fact that, you know, people in prison are completely at the whims of state correctional officials or sometimes federal correctional officials over the, their ability to exercise religion. Um, so this is going to be an interesting one, how the court kind of weighs the balance between the, the risks here asserted by the state and the religious liberty interests asserted by the death row inmate here. Certainly one to watch. 
Uh, now let's turn to a case uh, that we mentioned up top, also heard on Tuesday, um, involving Puerto Rico's residents and supplemental security income disability benefits. The case involves Jose Luis Valle Madero, who moved from New York to Puerto Rico and set off a tug of war with the government over $28,000 in Social Security benefit payments. It is a case that will further define the rights of the island's residents. And to help walk us through this case, we have Law 360's senior Florida reporter, Carolina Bellato, joining us from Miami. Welcome to the show, Carolina. Hi. Nice to see you guys. Great to have you on. So tell us a little bit about the facts of this case. Who is Jose Luis Vallejo Madero, and why did the government sue him? So he is a uh, Puerto Rican man who moved to New York in, I believe it was 1985, And he lived there for almost 30 years, worked there, spent most of his working life there. And in uh, 2012, he had a few strokes that left him unable to work or able to work very little. So he signed up for SSI uh, disability benefits. And SSI being? It's uh, Supplemental Security Income. And uh, it's a federal program for disabled individuals. And it provides, I believe... uh, For him, I'm not sure how much he got every month, but it was deposited directly into his account in New York, his banking account. Um, But then in, I think, about 2013, he he and his wife moved back to the island because she had her own health issues, and they wanted to be closer to extended family who could help care for them. So they moved back to the island, and he kept receiving his benefits through his New York bank account. Until uh, in 2016, uh, the government cut those off. And then in 2017, they sued him for over $28,000, saying that he um, had been overpaid, that he was no longer eligible. And then um, here's what got interesting. The the government actually kind of used some some heavy-handed tactics. Uh, At this point, Vallejo Madero did not have an attorney. And he ended up signing a consent judgment. Where, in where, where he agreed that he would be start paying back the government the twenty eight thousand um, dollars one hundred dollars it was going to be a hundred dollars a month that comes out came out of his uh, social security title two benefits which were about four hundred dollars a month so basically a quarter of his social security benefits would go to, back to the government and part of this consent judgment also included um, a an admission that he knew that he was not supposed to be receiving these this SSI disability benefits, which the problem there is that that can invite criminal liability. So a judge in the judge in Puerto Rico uh, said, huh, this is a little bit weird. Uh, I think this guy needs counsel. So she looked around for pro bono counsel. And that's how Herman Ferre of Curtis Mallet provost um, that they that's how he got involved. And um, they got the consent judgment thrown out and then basically started litigating this. So, so far, this sounds like, you know, a fairly administrative issue. How did we get to the Supreme Court? Well, Vallejo Madero's attorneys started bringing, they basically filed counterclaims saying this is a, you know, violation of constitutional rights of the, primarily the Equal Protection Clause of the Fifth Amendment. And um, 
Judge Gustavo Helpi, uh, who is now who is now confirmed for the First Circuit. He was in the District Court of Puerto Rico at the time. Uh, he basically said that um, he sided with Vallejo Madero. He basically said the territorial clause of the Constitution is not carte blanche for Congress to switch on and off the fundamental constitutional rights um, of you know citizens in Puerto Rico, and he said that that the the government's ex, uh, explanation for uh, why you know for for denying Puerto Ricans these, this benefit uh, did not pass the rational basis test, and the First Circuit basically agreed with that in uh, April 2020, and then the the government has continued to um, to to fight this, and we here we are at the U.S. Supreme Court. Right, and just to kind of clarify the stakes of this case, it, it does involve um, this particular defense that Vallejo Madero has asserted under the Constitution to claim that he should have been entitled to these benefits um, under the, the Fifth Amendment's Equal Protection um, Clause. But, you know, now that we're at the Supreme Court, the justices are basically grappling with the larger, broader question of whether the island's um, thousands of otherwise eligible residents can obviously be entitled to these benefits, right? Can you paint a picture of the stakes of this case now that Vallejo Madero's claims essentially have gone all the way up to the Supreme Court? I mean, this is, um, this could be huge, not just for Puerto Rico, depending on how the court goes, because there, there is, there's a chance that they make a very narrow ruling that could apply only to Puerto Rico and not to, say, the, um, you know, Guam or Virgin Islands or any of the other territories that the U.S. holds. Um, but it it could, I mean, Puerto Rico's the largest one, and there are thousands of people that could be, el- that would be eligible for disability benefits. And, and not just the SSI disability benefits, but there are other benefits, um, other programs that are not uh, extended to people in the territories. Um, so, you know, you could make, I'm sure that once the, if the Supreme Court says that you can't deny people SSI disability benefits, then, you know, this, this is the first domino to fall, right? And you've got other programs that could be extended. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a really big deal. I, I can tell you it is being watched very closely in, in not just Puerto Rico, but in all of the territories. Let's drill down a little bit to what... Ex- happened on Tuesday. Um, can you tell us a little bit more exactly about, you know, where the Biden administration argue, arguments went and, and what kind of reception they got? So the crux of the argument um, from the government is that Congress governs the territories and the territorial clause of the U.S. Constitution says Congress has the power to uh, create regulations and laws for the territories. And it's perfectly rational for Congress to treat the territories differently and deny them certain benefits because uh, residents of these territories are not subject to the same taxes and the same tax burden as residents of the states. Um, so if the community, if they don't pay into these programs, they don't benefit from them. Now, in this case, I mean, Vallejo Madero himself did pay into these, this program because he worked for most of his life in New York State. And so he did pay into it, but... Um, the government, the government's attorney kept saying like, the Puerto Ricans as a community are not paying into uh, paying into this. And the idea was the way he presented it is that 
This leaves more tax revenue on the island so that the territorial government can tap into those funds and address the community's needs that way in a, you know, a program that they could devise themselves. And it's kind of pitching it as providing for more self-government. Now, a couple of justices did note that, you know, they're like, this is the same government that is currently bankrupt, right? Right. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, as a practical matter, we know that that the, the Puerto Rican government does not have the ability to to provide and these to replace i guess these these SSI benefits that that dis- disabled individuals might be getting otherwise um so yeah the justices uh let's see justice Sotomayor um she brought up another case a parallel case called Peña Martinez versus Department of Health and Human Services that also originated in Puerto Rico and deals with SSI benefits as well as a few other bene- uh benefit programs federal benefit programs and she pointed out uh, in that case, uh, the district court judge, because the government made the same argument, like they're not paying as much in taxes. Right. And the district court judge said, well, I'm going to order discovery. Let's see how much Puerto Ricans pay in taxes. And what they found was that, sure, they may not pay income to federal income tax, but they pay other taxes and the tax burden is actually similar to that of many other states. Um, you know, others, they did, a, I think it ranked somewhere maybe middle or lower bottom, but they, they end up paying a little bit more than, than some states, less than some other states. So um, it's comparable. Even if they're not subject to this particular federal yes, income tax, because, in the aggregate, mm-hmm. they're paying more than a lot of the other states that Whose, right. whose residents do receive these supplemental security income disability benefits. Exactly. Um, and then Justice Breyer took that a step further, and he asked, uh, you know, could Congress cut Mississippi, for example, out of a federal benefit program because it contributes less in taxes than a lot of other states? Like, uh, can we do this to states? Is that a reasonable, rational, uh, or uh, arbitrary thing to do for Congress to say, you know what? Uh, we've discovered a state over here, uh, maybe it's Mississippi, uh, or maybe it's California for all I know, uh, that when you look at how much money they contribute to Washington, uh, proportionate uh, to the number of SSI things, uh, it's greater than 14 other states. So we cut them out of the program. How long do you think that would last? Well, I don't know how long that would last. Right, but I mean, what's your rationale? But Why is that a rational the thing? The rationale is... Basically, I mean, we know the answer is no, but but it was it didn't quite have a, a great answer to that, I think. Um, but it, it was it was an interesting thought, right? Like trying to poke the hole in there. Um, Mississippi, obviously, being one of the poorer states who's... Right. Who's, who send right. A, a smaller portion of their tax base to Washington than, say richer states and so i guess the question becomes like do we just divvy up the the who gets these federal uh, benefits by how much you're contributing in federal taxes and it seemed like there yeah that 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 seemed to strike a chord with the with the bench right yeah i think so um i mean at least with certain with part of the bench um i don't know if that's going to be the winning argument though but it was uh, like i'm not sure he's going to get five votes on that um But it was an interesting point that he made, I thought, uh, because so much of the government's argument rests on this, that the government specifically said the Equal, equal Protection Clause does apply in Puerto Rico. The Equal Protection Clause does apply in territories. It's just that we have 
we have a rational basis to to do this because of this tax argument. This might be a good time now to, to kind of take a look at what Valle Madero's attorney was arguing and then kind of ha- how the justices seem to approach those arguments can, can kind of drill down on the other side for us mm-hmm. now. So uh, is the argument's pretty simple. Uh, you know, told the court there's no, the government has no rational basis to do this, to treat Puerto Ricans uh, or residents of Puerto Rico differently um, and to violate the Equal Protection, protection Clause. Um, there was one interesting moment. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh said, well, you know, this may be unfair, but lots of people think that, for example, the Electoral College is unfair. But it's in the Constitution, just like the territorial clauses, and you can't remove either of these things without a constitutional amendment. So, like, what do we do here? And I thought Ferrer's argument here was interesting. He said that the territorial clause of the Constitution, which uh, it was, he says that it, the early jurisprudence from the Supreme Court indicates that the framers never meant for Congress to have like permanent control over territories. It was always meant to be temporary. The, the the clause is in the same section of the Constitution that deals with new states. And territories, for most of the country's history, were meant to be populated, organized into states with their own state governments, and then admitted to the Union. And that changed with the insular cases in 1901, where uh, the court, the, the government was dealing with a bunch of new territories that the that they won in the Spanish-American War. I think Puerto Rico, the Philippines, uh, Cuba temporarily, um, Guam, I believe. Um, and in these insular cases, the court held that inhabitants of US, U.S. territories do not automatically have full constitutional rights. Um, and Ferrer said basically the court stopped the clock with the insular cases and created these permanent territories governed by Congress and which is a legislative body in which these residents of these territories have no representation, have no voting representation. So um, he's basically arguing this was never meant to be used this way. Um, I don't know if he'll prevail on that, but it's an interesting argument. And it seems like everyone agreed, both parties, both the government and Ferrer, agree that the the insular cases are kind of outdated. Um and Justice Gorsuch, at one point, he said, well, should we just do away with them? Why shouldn't we just uh, admit that insular cases were incorrectly decided? Well, I, I think that it, that would not be the court's normal course to just say that uh, uh, several cases I'm were asking incorrect. for the government's position. I'm not asking uh, for thoughts about the court's normal course. Well, from, from the government's point of view, uh, if the insular cases are wrong, and if you're proceeding on a premise inconsistent with them, why shouldn't we just say what everyone knows to be true? And, and the government, you know, the government's attorney uh, replied that, well, we don't have to here. Like, we, we don't even need to do that. Right. Because their argument in, in, in the telling of the government's attorney, their argument doesn't depend on mm-hmm. the insular cases. That's at least what they argue. Obviously, it would be probably a fatal mistake to argue that it that it does depend on <laughs> these right. cases that are now so notorious in the in the court's jurisprudence. But let's just back up a bit because this case it involves I, I I wouldn't call it a narrow issue, but at least the specific issue of SSI disability benefits. But it, it really seems to strike at the heart 
of the status of Puerto Rico residents as citizens, especially at a time when there's so much controversy over whether Puerto Rico should you know, seek statehood or independence from the U.S. entirely. And I don't think that that was lost on some members of the bench. And so I, I kind of wanted to play a clip here from Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who I think brings an interesting and unique perspective as the sole Puerto Rican member of the Supreme Court. And here she is questioning Deputy Solicitor General Curtis Gannon during his oral argument. How does the fact that Puerto Rico residents are a politically powerless minority, you're just telling us that, can't protect itself the way Mississippi can, um, and has been subject to, by your own admission right now, a history of discrimination. The insular cases are a prime example of that. Just look at their language. Um, How does this factor into your argument on rational basis? Well, we don't think that there is any heightened scrutiny here. First, the benefit that's at issue here is not something to which there is a fundamental right. The Court made that clear in Schweiker, which was an SSI case. It made it clear that that the only question there is whether there was a no, suspect class. No, but equal class. protection is. Yes. Um, the Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. They are U.S. citizens, but there is no evidence here linking this exclusion to ethnicity or a well, history of I, discrimination. How do you it, separate it out? Puerto Ricans are Puerto Ricans. They're Hispanic, and they are routinely denied a political voice. They're powerless politically. Um, All you have to do is, well, listen to some of the rhetoric about Puerto Rico, and you know there has been discrimination shown. Why shouldn't that add to the scrutiny? So do you think the broader issue of the status of Puerto Rico as a territory of the U.S. will will factor into the court's decision here? Will it kind of extend beyond um, this particular issue of these federal disability benefits, Carolina? Um, I think so, although I don't think that the court's going to make any big pronouncements on that. Um, I mean, I'd be shocked if they if they did. Uh, you know, I, I think this is going to probably end up being ru- ruling on these this issue. Um, and, and I think it's worth noting that there are, as I, as I told you guys before, um, there are three cases that are pending right now that challenge, you know, these these benefits for people be, benefits being denied for for people in territories. Um, one is this the, the Vallejo Madero case is the one that's most advanced. There's the Peña Martinez case that Justice Sotomayor uh, mentioned, and then there's a case out of Guam called Schaller versus Social Security Administration. Uh, which is actually a really fascinating one. That's that is paused right now in the Ninth Circuit, pending the outcome of this case, and that involves uh, identical twin sisters with the same disability, a, gen- a genetic disability. Um, one lives in Pennsylvania and gets SSI benefits, and the other one lives in Guam with one of their sisters and does not get any benefits. Mm-hmm. So it's basically like a perfect test case, right, to take to the court. Um, but. When I first started covering this, I spoke to some legal experts who basically said, this is going to be an uphill climb for all of these people because there's so much, there's so much jurisprudence and there's just this longstanding tradition of, of saying Congress can do what it wants with the territories. And yet each of these, in each of these cases, the, um, I don't want to say plaintiffs because obviously like Bayou Madero was the defendant in this case, but in each of these cases, the, the, uh, the people, the disabled individuals have won at the district court level. And the the government is having trouble 
the government is using the same arguments it did in like 1970 when it won on these arguments. And it's running into some difficulty now. So it's, it seems like there's just a big change afoot on, on how the courts are going to treat people who live in territories. Now, I think one distinction, an important distinction, though, is that these are all cases involving like benefits, federal benefits. Um, they do not involve political liberties. And, uh, you know, there was a case called Igard Tua versus Trump, which a Puerto Rican man tried to sue to vote in presidential elections. And the First Circuit said no. And the Supreme Court declined to take up the case. That was in 2018. So we haven't gotten to political questions yet. But right now we're dealing with strictly economic ones and and territory residents are prevailing to a certain extent, which is a big deal because they have not for a long time. I think this is a really important thread of litigation to see how it all plays out. And I know I'm personally looking to see how this SSI case um, for Puerto Rico um, where the justice end up landing, as you kind of said, it's it's hard to tell exactly just where where the lineup might be. Um, but Carolina, thank you so much for coming on and for helping us break this one down. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun. Jimmy, I think that's about a wrap for us this week. It was a pleasure talking to you, Natalie. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank our special guest, Carolina Bolado. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if you're so inclined, please leave us a review.